Well, good morning. For those of you who don't know me, my name is Paul Austin, and I'm the worship director here. And today I'm not leading worship. Today I have the privilege of preaching God's word uh, to all of you. And just so you understand what's about to happen, um, I've been asked one other time in my 11 years here to give the message. And it was six years ago. So at a time when there wasn't a lot of other people on staff, we had a, a committee going for an executive pastor and a committee forming for an associate pastor. I think we were forming a committee for our youth pastor. So Doug, our senior pastor, he didn't have a lot of options. When he needed to go on vacation, I was one of the only people here. So six years ago, he gave me the opportunity to give the message. And I worked on it really hard and I had fun with it. And, you know, I, I thought it went pretty well. And then Doug didn't ask me to give the message again for six years. Second time in 11 years, so I've been on staff, 11 going on 12 years, that I've been up here giving the message. So if you're a visitor, just know I'm the guy they asked to preach once every six years or so. So please come back on a normal Sunday and see what our church is really like. If it makes you feel any better, during that same time frame, Doug also asked me to do the announcements, and I thought that I did a great job. I mean, I was funny, and I was charming, and I told some jokes, and I made the announcements fun because no one remembers the announcements, and I was like, I'm going to do it. I'm going to make the announcements fun. And he has never asked me to do those. It didn't even come up. So apparently, I'm better at giving the message than giving the announcements that's where we are this morning. Now, in all honesty, it's a privilege to be here. It's a privilege to get to talk about God's word. And it's been a privilege to get to serve with Doug McHenry for 11 years now. My family and I would not have stayed at this church in Salina, Kansas, if I did not believe that Doug McHenry is a godly man who preaches God's word faithfully every week and that God speaks through him. I would not have stayed here this long if I didn't think that. I've worked with several senior pastors throughout my music ministry and it's a heavy responsibility to be a senior pastor that God calls certain men to, to lead his church and to shepherd his flock. And we are very blessed to have Doug as our senior pastor. We're very blessed as a congregation. And hopefully Doug in his wisdom made a good decision letting me talk today. So this summer we've been walking through the book of Ecclesiastes, and I love the book of Ecclesiastes. My three favorite books in the Bible are Proverbs, James, and Ecclesiastes. And I never knew why I was drawn to these books until recently when I learned that these are considered a part of the Bible's wisdom literature. So the Bible's made up of 66 books, and each of these books has a different writing style. There's the books of the law, there's books of history like Chronicles and Kings, there's books of poetry like Psalms, there's the letters that the Apostle Paul wrote to the churches, there are books of prophecy like Daniel and Revelation, and then there's the wisdom literature, which are books like Proverbs and Job and James and the book of Ecclesiastes. And generally speaking, the wisdom books struggle with the question, how can life best be lived? Ecclesiastes in particular really dives into this question, how can life best be lived? And if you want to know the answer, all you really need to read are the last two verses of the book. It's interesting because I don't think that there's another book in the Bible that is written this way. We have 11 chapters where the author is searching for meaning and purpose in life, and he's finding nothing but futility and despair at everything he turns to. Then the last two verses give the answer to the main question the book has been posing the entire time. How can life best be lived? The end of the matter, all has been heard. 
Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment, including every secret thing, whether good or evil. That's the answer to the question. Jesus himself echoed these words in the last chapter of the Bible. In Revelation 22, Jesus says, Look, I am coming soon. My reward is with me, and I will give to each person according to what they have done. I am the Alpha and Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. And what these verses are saying is that the only thing that really matters in your life is your relationship with God. Did you follow him? Did you obey his commands? Did you know God? Reading passages like these, it always reminds me of the opening of the Westminster Catechism. And the opening question of that catechism asks, what is the chief end of man? And the answer is, man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. That's what you were created for, to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Everything else in your life is transient, vapor, meaningless if you don't know God. Nothing will fill you or give you peace or satisfaction except for God. Not wealth, not pleasure, not a just society, not the perfect political system, not your family, not your children, not your accomplishments, not the inheritance you leave your children, not your legacy, nothing. Those are not lasting. Only your relationship with God and the eternal works we do for his kingdom will last. Jesus himself said this in the Sermon on the Mount. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. You were designed to live forever. You are going to live forever. And the main part of how you spend eternity is going to be based on how you lived your life here on this earth. Your 70-year vapor of a life. According to Jesus, this life is not the main thing. This is a testing ground for laying up treasures in heaven. John Piper once said, Jesus talked like we get a few years to invest. Invest right, because then you spend. We've got a totally different mindset. Our mindset is we have 70 years to spend, and then it's over. Life is done. It's all we've got. It's not the message of the Bible. It's not the message of Jesus. And it's not the message of Ecclesiastes. The entire book is a call to turn your eyes to your creator. And chapter 5 tells us how we are to do this. So I've been leading corporate worship since I was 14 years old. I love when the church gathers to sing together. There is nothing else like it in our society. The corporate worship of the church is so much better than going to a concert. It is so much more moving than any other musical experience we can participate in because it involves the family of God singing praises to God. There is nothing that should stir your heart more than hearing your brothers and sisters in Christ singing God's praise. It's unlike any other musical experience. And in 2020, we saw that it stands alone. When the pandemic hit, the music of the world stopped. There were no more concerts, no more tours, no more choirs, no more symphonies. The music of the world stopped 
completely. But the songs of the church never stopped. We never stopped singing in this church. Even when our entire country went on lockdown, we still streamed our services. Our worship team met up here and led songs. And this congregation sang in our houses. And then as soon as the lockdown ended, we met back up here and we kept on singing. There were no other musicians in the world playing music except for church musicians. People did not want to listen to Mozart or the Beatles or Kanye. They wanted to listen to and sing the songs of the church because our songs contain the words of life. There's nothing else like them. Now, as much as I love music and corporate worship, I don't think that music is the main reason why it is so important for the Christian to gather with his fellow believers and come to church each Sunday. Music is actually a tool that helps us with a more important reason. And one of the more important reasons why it is vital for us to gather together each week is because it is the only portion of your week where you are not focused on you. Think about it. You wake up and you think about what you're going to eat for breakfast. You decide what you're going to wear. Decide what time you want to leave. You think about where you're going that day, what you were going to do, who you were going to talk to, what work you have to get done, what you're going to do to relax when you get home, how much money you spent or made that day, whether you can buy that thing that you've really been wanting, whether you need to go shopping to get more food or clothes or gadgets. Every minute from the minute you wake up until you put your head on your pillow to read your book before you fall asleep is about you. And that's true for all of us. That's why people who are unselfish surprise us so much. Wow, you did that for me? So thoughtful. It's shocking when people are unselfish and do things for others because we recognize on a subconscious level that all of us are pretty much just worried about ourselves all the time. Being an unselfish person is actually one of the main goals of the Christian life. When they asked Jesus, what's the greatest commandment? He said, love God and love your neighbor as yourself. One of the things that should set Christians apart in the world is we should be known for thinking of others instead of ourselves. But it's hard because we have this sin nature that inclines us to think about ourselves every waking hour of the day. But corporate worship helps us with that because when you show up to church, the focus is not you. The focus is God. He's the focal point of our meeting. You are here to worship God. You are here to listen to his word, to respond to what he tells you, to confess your failures and your sin and to obey his commandments. God is the focus of our meeting, not you. And it's really important for the Christian because for most of us, it's the only time of the week where we're not thinking about ourselves. But inevitably, Because we are so focused on ourselves, when we approach God and come to church, we still try to make it all about ourselves. And the author of Ecclesiastes points it out right here because it was going on in his day as well. People were coming to God's house and they were making it about themselves. That's why they came to worship, to ask things of God. So the author, in his search for how best to live, he lays out how we are to approach God if we are to know him. First part, guard your steps when you go to the house of God. Don't hear that too much 
when we talk about coming to church, do you? Guard your steps when you come to church. That's not something that we say. That phrase expresses the need for discretion and care when approaching God. In my opinion, the American Evangelical Church has done a great job of emphasizing God's love and his nearness and a terrible job of emphasizing God's holiness. And it is evident in all of the popular worship songs of our day. Very few emphasize God's holiness or his righteousness or his coming wrath to destroy sin and those that are enslaved to it. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Philippians 2.12. John Piper once said, Tremble if you ever feel any inclination to leave this God. There is only destruction away from him. Oh, how we should fear to leave the Lord. Tremble in his presence that he will so graciously receive us, forgive all of our sins, and make an everlasting future. So many people do not fear their carnal departures. They don't tremble. This attitude was never more evident to me than when I was in college. Because when I was in college, there was this t-shirt fad among younger Christians where they wore these t-shirts that said, Jesus is my homeboy, across the front. Jesus is my homeboy. Let me tell you something. Jesus is not your homeboy. He's your Lord and Savior. Think of the way that Jesus is described in the Bible. King of kings, Lord of lords, Prince of Peace, Alpha and Omega, beginning and the end, Lion and the Lamb. Homeboy. It's not in there, folks. You think Jesus is your homeboy, you're not working out your salvation with fear and trembling. Your viewpoint of God is flawed. Throughout Scripture, God is constantly describing to us how infinite he is. He takes these concepts that are as far apart as we can grasp, and then he describes himself as both. He's the beginning and the end. He's the lion and he's the lamb. He's the king of kings, yet he came to serve. God loves us and we are his children and he is near to those who are contrite in heart, but he is also holy and righteous and clothed in unapproachable light. Too many times we emphasize the aspects of God that are easy and that make us feel good. But God is so far beyond anything that we can imagine. And the more we strive to understand his attributes and the way that he describes himself in scripture, the more we will realize how awesome and worthy of praise he really is. For thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. I dwell in the high and holy place and also with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. Second part, to draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools for they do not know that they are doing evil. Be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God. For God is in heaven, you are on earth, therefore let your words be few. For a dream comes with much busyness, and a fool's voice with many words. 
If we approach God with an attitude of reverence, then the next part of the passage makes sense. Draw near to listen. Guard your steps and draw near to listen. In the time that these words were written, all of the cultures of the earth were ruled by kings, and the king's word was law. Whatever the king said at any point was carried out. People would exercise the utmost caution before speaking to the man who had such an exalted position in society. We see a really great example of this in the book of Esther. Esther is asked by her uncle to go and speak to the king, who is her husband, and her uncle asked her to go and speak even though the king has not invited her. And the uncle had a good reason. Someone in the king's court is about to commit a genocide of the Jewish people. Hitler was not the first person to try that. And so Esther, being Jewish, agrees that she should probably go talk to him. And when she goes to talk to her husband, she is 99% sure that she is going to die on the spot because she went to talk to him without being summoned. This is her husband, and she literally thinks her husband is going to kill her because she is speaking to him without permission. That's how careful people were when approaching the king. And the author is saying, if you are that careful in front of an earthly king, how much more careful should you be when approaching the king of kings? I really feel like this is a hard concept for American Christians because we are now 245 years into this idea called freedom of speech. Freedom of speech is a new idea on the world stage. We enjoy a freedom that the rest of humanity has not known. And we take it for granted that everyone can say whatever they want about any public figure at any time. That is their right. Let me tell you something. If the celebrities in China and Russia spoke about their leaders the way American celebrities speak about our president, they would not wake up in the morning. They would not see another sunrise. And that's how it's been for most of history, except for in the United States of America, right? We enjoy a freedom that no one else has really known. So it makes us not inclined to understand reverence or awe or fear the way that every other culture has almost instinctively understood it. You know, for Americans, if we get to go see the king, we're not going to listen We get to go see the king. We're going to give that king a piece of our mind. I get to go see the king. I'm going to tell that king exactly what I think of him. Better yet, you tell the king to come see me. I'm an American. I don't have time to see the king. That's how we view kings. So it makes us not inclined to approach God To listen, right? But throughout Scripture, this is how we are to approach Him, drawing near to listen and letting our words be few. Jesus Himself said this in the Sermon on the Mount. He said, And when you pray, do not keep on babbling like pagans, for they think they will be heard because of their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Saying something five times is not going to compel God more than one heartfelt, authentic request. God is not hard of hearing, and he is not reluctant to bless his children. And he wants us to make requests. In Philippians, it says, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. But that's not usually our problem, a lack of request. 
Our problem is we don't draw near to listen. The truth is, as one of my very favorite theologians, A.W. Tozer said, God is spirit, but God is also a person. He came to earth as the man, Jesus Christ, and as such can be known as any person can. If the only time we talk to God is when we are asking him for something, are we really getting to know him? The thing about relationships is that communication is usually two ways. Are you constantly asking things of God or are you listening to what he would have you do? Christianity is a religion of action. When we are told to pray without ceasing in Thessalonians, I don't think that means that we are to constantly be making requests of God all day long. I think it means we're to be constantly listening to what God would have us do as we live our lives and interact with the people around us. So how do we listen? How do we hear from God? How do we get to know God so that we can hear from him? Number one, read his word. God speaks through the reading of his word. It is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the bone and to the marrow. Let the man who would hear God speak, read Holy Scripture. Here alone in the pages of the Bible, God speaks with final authority. Here alone decisive authority rests. From here alone the gift of God's righteousness comes to hell-bound sinners. Martin Luther said that. We have the words of life, and we have more access to them than any generation that has ever walked the face of the earth. If you want to hear from God, read his word. Number two, surround yourself with God-fearing Christians. God speaks through your pastor. God speaks through the music and the songs of the church. Surround yourself with people that take God's word seriously and can provide you with good counsel. Be a part of a church that takes God's word seriously because God will speak to your church. He will speak right here. That's why you came here this morning, to hear God speak. Number three, prayer. We can talk directly to God and he will speak directly to us. He did it all the time throughout the Bible. He has not stopped in 2021. As Tozer said, the voice of God is a friendly voice. No one need fear to listen to it unless he has already made up his mind to resist it. God is speaking all the time. And if we listen, he will speak clearly. God loves you and created you for a purpose, to glorify him and enjoy him forever. Do you know God? Do you hear him speak? Do you treasure him above all else? Because life will not have any meaning unless you do. I'm going to close with this quote because I think it perfectly sums up the conclusion of the book of Ecclesiastes. The man who has God for his treasure has all things in one. Many ordinary treasures may be denied him, or if he is allowed to have them, the enjoyment of them will be so tempered that they will never be necessary to his happiness. Or if he must see them go one after one, he will scarcely feel a sense of loss for having the source of all things. He has in one all satisfaction, all pleasure, all delight. 
Whatever he may lose, he has actually lost nothing, for he now has it all in one, and he has it purely, legitimately, and forever. I know that we normally close our servants with a prayer, but I'd like to close by singing a song. And instead of singing along with me, uh, I'd ask you to just sit and listen, because God is speaking to you this morning. Will you listen to what he is saying?
I want you to stand for the benediction. May the Lord our God be with you to defend you, within you to keep you, before you to lead you, beside you to guard you, and above you to bless you. Amen.